Hello, everybody. I'm Paul Gilroy. I am the director of the Sarah Parker Riemann Centre for the Study of Racism and Racialization at University College London. And I'm absolutely honoured and delighted to welcome here Courtney Griffiths, QC, distinguished practitioner of the law, advocate, criminal barrister, someone whose 40 years of experience at the bar has led them through all manner of extraordinary trials and political opportunities among them the Damilola Taylor murder trial, the trial of those men who were accused of killing PC Blakelock, a number of key criminal cases, too many really to enumerate here, recipient of numerous awards, who has spent, as I said, 40 years of practice at the criminal bar. And Courtney worked at Garden Court Chambers for a number of years and now practices from 25 Bedford Place. Courtney, I'm really, really happy to have a chance to talk to you in these extraordinary circumstances that we're in right now. And I suppose I've been wondering how someone with your experience and your eye, your angle of vision on the institutional racism in our country and the various movements that have risen up during those four decades to press back, to fight back against it, how you're looking at what's unfolding around us at the moment. Well, the thing is right. But I think there are concerns here in the United Kingdom. Currently, I am defending a 16-year-old boy charged with five others with murder. And the reason why I raise it is this. The old Bailey where this murder trial is taking place, I've practiced there for the last 30 years, almost constantly. There are 18 courts there. And on any given day, if you were to tour all of those courts, I promise you the majority of those courts will involve the trial of young black males between the age of 14 and 25 with murder. And in all of those cases, we're not talking about one individual who's been charged with murder. We're talking about, for the most part, at three black youngsters who are charged with murder in all those courts. Now, what's the background to that? One, it's all said to be knife crime, whereas hitherto it was firearm related in a number of places around the country, like Liverpool, Manchester, Nottingham, and Birmingham. But now it's primarily knife crime, concentrated for the most part in London. And what concerns me about that is this. Behind what is happening in relation to that is the exclusion of most of these boys from school. And hence, their inopportunity to work properly, get a job, and not be tempted to get into crime in order to provide a living for themselves. And it concerns me because it suggests to me that racism is that much at work in the criminal justice system here in the UK as it clearly is in the United States of America. And what concerns me having done some war crime is that this racism is not limited to national criminal justice systems in the US. The same can be found here in Germany to an extent involving Turks, in France, involving French nationals from North Africa and elsewhere from French colonies in West Africa. The same problem is present. 
Because the bottom line is this. In reality, racism within the criminal justice system follows the laws of gravity. It drops from north to south. And so consequently, when you look at the work the International Criminal Court has been doing under the Rome Statute from its outset, every single person put on trial there or indeed arrested is from guess where? Only Africa. Why? So the, the concerns that people are expressing now in a number of states globally needs to be in some way thought about as to what we're going to do to confront this. How are we going to deal with it internationally? Because it's an international problem. And it's clearly a heritage from the slavery and colonialism which has plagued Africa and Black people for several centuries now. What do we do? I mean, I suppose looking at the incredible global explosion of feeling amongst young people of all kinds following the murder of George Floyd in Minnesota. I suppose I have hope that we're on the edge now of an unprecedented period of political change and that that mobilization will turn into a movement and that the movement will show the world that the rising generation the generation which is so subject to all the anxieties and concerns of an almost existential kind as they faced a climate crisis too, is looking at the question of freedom, is looking at the question of justice, and looking at the question of equality through the frame that the struggle against racism provides them with. Would you agree that's possible? I think it's possible. And the reason why I think so, Paul, is this. If we look back to the 1960s, during the civil rights movement in the United States to confront racism, not many white people were involved. I agree. Remember, there were occasions when Jews based in North America, in particular in New York, were supporting that. And some of them got murdered in you know, the southern part of the United States. What I find quite special about what has been happening globally now is the number of young white people who are supporting this, you know, globally. We've never experienced that before so publicly. And I think the question is, how do we as black people in that situation deploy that in a way which is going to confront the politicians who run the country who now need to be, you know, I'm talking about Boris Johnson and the Conservatives, and indeed Keir Starmer and the Labour Party. How do you now confront the racism within the NHS so that the majority of those killed during this pandemic are black? But what are they doing about it in terms of the hierarchy of the NHS, which is still dominated despite all those things? by white people. What do they do about the education system in terms of the disproportionate number of black kids who get excluded from school? How do you also cope with the sentencing system operated by the criminal justice system, whereby a disproportionate number of black people are serving senior sentences in our prisons? 
how do we, particularly given what Doris Johnson is thinking about the predominance of knife crime and the need to appeal to a part of society in response to that concern, what do we do now as a collective, white and black, BAME, to confront all of that? And that's my concern. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, we share that concern and it's reality based because let's face it, let's be brutal here and say, you know, we traditionally and historically, we've looked to our community organisations and struggles on the one side. And then we've looked to the Labour Party on the other, which is our principal vehicle. And the record of the Labour Party in this is, well, to put it very mildly and bluntly, is mixed. It's a mixed record. Because when it's been expedient for them to appeal to nationalist and racist and xenophobic constituencies that they think are important for the electoral block they need to hold together, they've shown themselves in the last decades, really, to be as absolutely as um, opportunistic in their voicing of those arguments, in their appeal to those instincts. As a conservative, it's almost as though they covet the kind of electoral magic that the appeal to what's supposedly called the white working class is somehow, you know, it's going to be sending the right signals that will enable them to motivate people into the political process who wouldn't be motivated to, to operate politically at all, perhaps, without that pitch. So you get someone, you know, as an intelligent and thoughtful a man as Gordon Brown voicing the opinions of the ultra-right and parroting their slogan, British jobs for British workers. You have Tony Blair and Peter Mandelson posing at the White Cliffs of Dover and so on. There is a sense, I suppose, among many voices in the left, not only the parliamentary ones, that really the people who vote for them are stupid and that they can be manipulated easily by this kind of racist language, these racist symbols, this racist rhetoric. And that, you know, Margaret Thatcher got it right when she incorporated the National Front and all these people into the conservative project and pulled the rug out from underneath them in 1979. So people covet those tactics. They covet that approach and they think that they can, you know, expediently annex it for their own alternative. Well, of course, we look at that and we say that makes it no alternative at all. And I think the future is going to have to be different. And that's the message which is being transmitted from the streets of this country and the streets of so many other countries. Tonight, I was just looking at the photographs that have been sent to me of the Black Lives Matter protests in Kyoto, in Sweden, in so many different parts of the world, you know, not just the post-colonial countries, not just the global north. These things are evident everywhere and they have been energised by the crisis, the pandemic, the health crisis, which is part of all of this too. So I want to be hopeful about it and I want to think about it, but you set us off on a different track because you very boldly began by saying that the patterns of criminalization so familiar to us from our own youth, actually, are not only still functional in Britain, but in a sense intensified and that the focus on guns, the focus on gangs, the focus on knives is in some respect a rehearsing of things that are absolutely familiar to our generation, what Linton Quasey Johnson, who spoke for many of us, called the rebel generation. I don't know what to call the generation that's being criminalized now. It's tempting to call them the lost generation, but I'm not yet ready to write them off in that way. I'm not writing them off. My concern is that the attitude of the police at one level judges and also at one level the Crown Prosecution Service and those who present cases in court hasn't really changed yet. Yeah. You know, despite what is happening now, 
Yeah. There isn't even a debate going on within the legal profession and with judges about the kind of concerns I have about the disproportionate impact of the criminal justice system on black people, not just here, but everywhere. Mm. What do you know about this? I mean, how do you think that legal training, that legal education has to be transformed to be able to change that and to force back onto the agenda things that flickered in there a little while, perhaps in the early 80s? I'm thinking of the period immediately after the riots of 1981, which will be 40 years next year. I mean, there was a moment, maybe I'm deluding myself, but I seem to remember a moment where these things were briefly of concern. And I'm wondering what institutionally, as far as the law is concerned, as far as criminal justice and prisons are concerned, as far as policing is concerned, from your perspective, how does legal training have to be reformed and transformed? How do the institutions and apparatuses of the judiciary have to be transformed in order to meet this challenge? Well, I think there are three points to be made. The first point is this. If you do a law degree at any university in the United Kingdom, you'll cover the law of contract, criminal law, European law, all these other topics. What doesn't feature in any of the law degrees is the way in which racism, particularly in the criminal area, has resulted in certain things when it comes to black people. That doesn't feature as a topic in law degrees. The idea is to cover all these topics and to go into a profession which is dominated by white people. And as a consequence of that, the areas at the bar, for example, and indeed for solicitors, where you have a likelihood of earning proper money, commercial law, chancery law, that kind of stuff, it's still predominantly white. The only place you find black people in the legal profession now is criminal law, immigration, family law, all of which is funded by legal aid, okay? And the other aspect of it is this. Most of those white dominating chambers making money, only picking graduates from Oxford and Cambridge, University College London, King's College London, and the London School of Economics, where I went. And you know how difficult it is now for black youngsters to get into those legal departments. It's still a problem for them. And as a result, there are a number of levels at which these problems are being created. And another one is this. There are one or two more black judges these days in the Crown Court, in the Family Court. But the dominating judges, high court judges, Supreme Court judges, are still predominantly white. So the hierarchy still has that difficulty. The people who are dealing with this racist criminal justice system are predominantly white, coming from a public school and certain university background. What do they know? Not a great deal. And in fact, I should tell you, Paul, that I was approached to become a high court judge and I refused to do it. You know why? Because I realized that as an individual, I wouldn't have the greatest impact at that level. And not only that, you know, black people who I know or sought to get onto that level 
haven't lasted for very long. They've resigned early because of the difficulties they've been experiencing at that level. So the bottom line is this. There is a structure in place which is dominating the law, which I'm not so sure is minding, despite what's happening now at a protest level, to reflect that thinking at that kind of level within the law. I'm not so sure it's there. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I know that we can say that there are a number of key institutions in this country that have this problem, and that as inequality has intensified during the last two decades here, that problem has become more intractable, and that those opportunities are fewer and further between, more fortified against the possibility that the outsiders and intruders, and this raises a number of questions of inclusion and diversity, more fortified against the possibility that anyone who isn't already part of that sort of cultural bubble, let's call it that, is ever going to be able to not only enter, but to be able to remain. I mean, I know that has to happen. I know that that has to be transformed. I suppose I've watched these things long enough to know that there are no guarantees input. It's necessary to have a change of personnel, but there are no guarantees in that because I think that by itself, the transformation of personnel is insufficient. So we have to have that. It's a practical goal, but there are a number of other things that have to happen too. And you've already pointed to some of them in your sense of how legal education and training have to be altered in order to accommodate a serious engagement with what we've known for so long those systems can do to the lives of black and other minority ethnic people. I was thinking a lot actually about the mangrove trial because it's 40 years this summer, August, since the trial of the mangrove nine. And of course, your sometime colleague Ian MacDonald at Garden Court was one of the counsel for the defendants in that trial. I mean, I sort of think we have to restore the memory of these important occasions to the lives of the activist groups, but we also have to restore the history of these trials, these pivotal moments. We have to restore that memory to the life and habits of the legal profession as well. I totally agree, Paul, because, you know, We've lost our recollection of what happened with the soft laws on black people in the 70s and 80s. We've kind of lost what had triggered off the riots in Brixton, Bristol, all around the country, Liverpool, in the early 1980s. And it wasn't just something immediate. It was like several decades of the way we were treated as black youngsters growing up in this country. Yes, I'm a QC now, but I recall being stopped as a youngster in the precinct in Coventry by police officers when I hadn't done anything. And they took me into a small hall in the middle of the precinct in Coventry and basically threatened me. And I hadn't done anything. It was just the way I was dressed and the colour of my skin. And that's the way things were. And it was in the early 1980s that black youngsters decided to confront that through riot. And it's the reason why I decided I wanted to become a criminal defense advocate, because that's where I thought, now I've qualified, it's going to be too difficult for you to arrest me, so I can curse you in court in a way in which I couldn't do it on the street. And I enjoyed it. But... The only difference is that things have changed. Back then, when I started out in 1980, police officers fitted up black people in court. 
like Winston Silka for the first Blaiklock murder trial, which I was involved in, mm. they fitted him up. It was common practice to attribute certain admissions to black defendants when they're arrested. The Police and Criminal Evidence Act passed in 1984, while Thatcher was the Prime Minister, has changed things, surprisingly. So that nowadays, it's very difficult to come across a police officer who's fitted it up in the way it used to happen back in the 1970s, 60s, and 80s. So nowadays, in a criminal trial, the primary evidence is CCTV, mobile evidence, and DNA. And in many cases, they don't need eyewitnesses anymore. So it's changed. But despite that change and the absence now of the fitting up which went on in earlier years, it still resulted in a disproportionate number of black people being convicted. Why? Because to my mind, the answer is, who is conducting and in charge of this system? And what is the motivation behind that desire to have these more convictions? And it has to do, to my mind, with racism, that it's still a structured part of the criminal justice system here. Without it being discussed openly, because without it being featuring in trials the way it used to do, back with, for example, the mangrove trial, the consequences still remain the same. And it seems to me we ought to be confronting that in a different way altogether. I mean, that's obviously true. And I wonder really about how that confrontation is going to be organised, because you spoke a moment ago about the impact of technology on the patterns of prosecution, the kinds of decisions that are being made on the basis of discretion by police officers, on the basis of the assessments of the evidence that's produced by the Crown Prosecution Service and other authorities who are implicated in the functioning of these systemic patterns. And so I'm thinking a little bit about the technology and what role the technology might play, not just in bringing this end about, in bringing this result about, but what role the technology might play in the struggle against these patterns, what role the technology might offer in a more defensive or even, you know, liberationist way to protect the interest of those who had so disproportionately victimized by these um, structural processes. Well, let me give you an example of the concerns that I have. I have currently been engaged in a trial at the Old Bailey, which started on the 9th of March of this year. The interesting thing, Paul, is this. At the centre of the case is CCTV evidence. What happened was this, and I'm limiting the evidential situation in order to confront the principal point I want to make. On the day this occurred, some Arab boys attacked some black boys from South London in a park in North London. There was contact between some of the boys who were injured during that initial episode on the phone, and some of them came up to North London in a cab. As the cab arrived in that part of North London, a group of Arab boys once again attacked them. A fight started, which resulted in one of the Arab boys being stabbed to death after a chase. And despite that overall picture of Arab boys picking on black boys, not one of the Arab boys was charged with 
anything, nothing at all. The only people charged with the murder trial are six black boys. Why? Why they're perceived as a threat and the ones to be targeted, even though they didn't provoke this situation. And it tells you, it seems to me, where the direct concern is. It's black kids. That's the prominent and direct concern. I cannot understand why that is being reflected in a contemporary case. It doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting that you put it like that, Courtney, because it seems to me that, you know, in our day, it was the Caribbean descended, Caribbean heritage, young people who were being actively criminalized. And now the black communities involved are actually quite different. You know, very often they're African heritage people. You know, I mean, to be honest, it's quite a different blackness in a way. Sometimes the language of blackness in terms of identity doesn't even feature because these young people, I meet many of them around here, you know, think of themselves as Ghanaian or Nigerian or they have a particular attachment, which is perhaps a national attachment. It's not the idea of being black doesn't, you know, I mean, they receive the kind of generic blackness through the computer and the culture and so on that they're exposed to through some of the music. But the center of that music production isn't even the United States any longer. Often it's a West African scene that's generating that music. It's a different blackness, and yet they're still on the receiving end of these processes. And we can't explain it only through looking at poverty, looking at inequality. We're driven time and time and time again back to the effects of racism itself as a factor, in the same way that people looking at the disproportional vulnerability of black populations to the infection and the death and the you know, the health outcomes associated with the racial discrepancies that the COVID data has yielded. So we really do have to return to thinking about racism. The problem is, and I say this, you know, from within the academic world, I guess, which is a bit like the legal one in this, that as soon as you start to talk about racism explicitly, directly, consistently, people think that you are an interloper who doesn't know the rules that govern the functioning of professional life in these institutions. And I think it's really a conversation about racism itself that we lack. It's a conversation about racism itself that we lack and one that requires us to go beyond these ridiculous definitions that continually circulate racism is prejudice plus power. No, it isn't. We're talking about something much more complex, much more elaborate, much more sophisticated, much more embedded than that. We need some fresh thought. We need some different perspectives that are not just the repetition of, you know, McKinsey multiculturalism and diversity speak. We're dealing really with something that well, I think actually the young people who are out in the streets right now have understood this because the penny has dropped for them that their own freedoms, their own horizons, their own hopes, their own survival is bound up with a reckoning with this machinery. And without that reckoning, none of them will be able to be free. I totally agree with you, Paul. But Paul, can I just mention something to you which... I think as black people, we ought to be confronting. And it's this. I've spent virtually all of the last 30 years at the Old Bailey defending young black boys. And there's a feature to those trials which is concerning me so much now that part of me doesn't want to do those murder trials anymore. And it's this. When you're doing one of those trials and you look in the public gallery, all you see is mom, not dad, for the most part, and they're black. And if there's a conviction, as I'm leaving the old baby, 
their moms crying because their boy, their young boy, has just got a life sentence. Why is that? And now, knowing that, what should we do about it? Is that about racism? Or is it another issue which we ought to be confronting apart from racism? What is it? And what are we as a community doing to confront that? And question, who should be confronting it, right? And with whom ought it to be confronted? Mm. And so consequently, what should be done about it? Mm. Yeah, I mean, these are good questions and they're hard questions to answer. And of course, you know, Let's be blunt again. I mean, there are things about the ways in which black households overrepresented among the legions of the poor, lacking in social institutions of one kind or another, operating within kinship structures that need to be recognized as historically formed in certain sorts of conditions. I mean, the danger about this is, Courtney, that by going into this area, that you open the door to the old script that you and I know so well, the script of black pathology, which says that, you know, Black criminality is an outcome of household disorganization, in particular the absence of the appropriate varieties of gender roles. And this is a kind of thing that we saw brought to bear on explaining the nature of the civil rights conflicts and the riots in the United States during the 1960s. Even Scarman, if you remember Lord Scarman's report into the riots in Brixton, had a version of that argument that was there, even though in his case, of course, it was coupled with a dismissal of the idea that institutional racism was part of the diagnosis that he was offering, having visited and reached out to those communities. So I'm a little bit wary about being seen to rehearse and repeat this old argument about the measures of responsibility that families and households bear for the criminalization of, of their young people. I'm not saying there aren't issues there, and I think there are some perhaps more interesting solutions that lie in the direction of approaching some of the patterns of violence that you describe through the language of public health, for example. I mean, let's face it, for everybody in this country, the mental health support services are not really functional. Offering these young people, you know, CBT to manage their anxieties is not an adequate resource to really deal with some of the pressures that they're under. The question earlier on that you mentioned, which is, I think, fundamental, the way in which school exclusions factor into this, into this story is another one. And then, you know, there are a number of ways in which this situation you described is also something that we can apprehend as a crisis of masculinity itself. Certainly, you know, black feminists have been writing about these things for many decades now, looking at questions of black masculinity, looking at gender patterns, looking at the role of violence against women in that mix as well, and thinking about safety in households, thinking about supporting those households where people are vulnerable, not just intimate partners, but children, of course, as well. And, you know, for a long time, when I was interested in social science and sociology, I, I made myself very unpopular by saying that what you're invoking as a kind of incorrigible black culture is actually a form of abuse that needs to be identified and in the language of today called out. So I think there are resources that are addressed at community level, many people working very, very hard to turn the attention of what's left of our welfare and support services and social services in the direction of a more positive intervention in these patterns. And what I can't really, I'm not saying you were doing this because I didn't hear this in what you said at all, 
But I think there is a kind of neoliberal sense that we're all responsible for our own fate and we all have the chances. And really, whether you go down a path of criminality and violence and hypermasculinity is your own decision. And if you dress properly and study hard and have high standards, you know, that your opportunities will unfold in front of you and you can go marching off to Oxford and have a very happy life in the future. I don't really buy that dream that optimism, which is in some respects a very cruel trick to play on people who are invited to drink the Kool-Aid of neoliberalism in circumstances which don't admit those kinds of mobility. I agree with you, Paul. I agree with you. And, you know, the primary reason why I've raised that topic, I know you, I know the kind of work you've done over the years and how beneficial and instructive it has been. But, you know, given the situation in which I'm working, I'm getting concerned about it now because it's been back to back for 30 years. And that's the reason why now I am particularly concerned about it. I want, like, a debate amongst us, just us, right? Mm. I don't expect its exploitation by the National Front and the right wing. That's not going to help us. I would like to see us thinking more constructively about the need to attend to certain aspects of that. Mm. To date, I'm not so sure that it's happening at the kind that I'd like it to. No, I agree. I agree. I think, you know, we should really mention Diane Abbott here because she's somebody who has tried at some cost to herself, actually to raise some of these questions and to, in a sense, politicise them, make them political within the consciousness of the Labour Party. And I remember the reaction against her, I think, absolutely inappropriately and wrongly when she raised questions about the use of pornography amongst young black men. And these were immediately dismissed as being instances of, you know, washing your dirty linen in public. In a way, Courtney, I think the time has come for us not to worry about those things and that there is a kind of discipline that's required from us and from the conversations about policy, about education, about housing and living space, you know, that we pay too much attention to those anxieties about what other people will think and that we have to have the courage, we have to have the consistency to have that conversation among ourselves, to have it publicly and not be too concerned about the use that will inevitably be made of it by those who don't hold our interests at heart. So I think the time's come to have that conversation, to have those difficult conversations and not to be overly concerned about the fact of having them as a potential source of damage to our interests. So yes, absolutely. Let's begin to have those conversations. I mean, one of the things I feel, I was thinking about it earlier on today, you know, African-Americans, one of the things I was very struck by was the way that they had been a community and that many of those people, people who occupy positions like the one you occupy or the one I occupy, had a, a set of institutional mechanisms and habits that enabled them to talk to one another and act together politically as a group. I think that, you know, I mean, obviously one knows individuals, the extraordinary things that people have been doing, men and women have been doing, black men and women, particularly of our age group, who have maybe less to lose, have been trying to do. But we seldom, we very, very seldom act as a collective. We very, very seldom act in a coordinated way to intervene in these political conversations. And I think we've got to begin to do that too. And I I feel questions of reforming education is fundamental to this. And that's where I guess I'm not just saying that as an educator, I feel that that for me still supplies the key. I totally agree with you, Paul. I think that the way in which education is conducted globally 
needs to be changed. Because yes, we can pull down the statue of slavery, but at the same time, we need to remind people of the history of what they did. There's two aspects to it. No longer prominent, I'll pull your statue down, but I want the people to know at the same time what you did, okay? So there's two aspects to it. And that second aspect has never occurred. And I think it's something which has to be addressed. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe, you know, thanks to the fact that those young people pulled that statue down, those conversations are beginning to be had. And let's hope that there's some outcomes and some positive developments that will flow from that, because without their action, these conversations wouldn't be happening. Oh, cool. But I thank them for that. And, you know, that image of white boys pulling down that statue to Bristol just shocked me, because most of them are white. Some of them have got to a stage now where... They like black people in a way in which, although there have been interracial relationships for years here, I think that kind of prompted me to think that we've kind of overstepped a hurdle now. And it's that energy and it's that enthusiasm which I'd like to see us trying to exploit even more and promote even more, because I think it's important. Well, let's hope that our political voices can find some courage in these examples too. And Courtney, thank you so much for this very wide-ranging and stimulating conversation. I hope that as the centre moves forward, you'll be able to continue that conversation with us and use the platform that the centre provides to pursue your arguments about the nature of legal education. I'm sure my colleagues in the laws department at UCL would only be too delighted to host you in a discussion about how they can improve their own performance in this area. And I'd love to assist in that sense, because I'm at an age now where it's not just about practice. It's how I'd like to help in terms of education and in terms of how Black people in particular should be seeking to pursue their careers in this profession. I'm more than happy to help. And it was a pleasure talking to you again, Paul, after all these years. You just take care. And you, Courtney. Thanks a lot, my friend. Thank you for listening. For more information about UCL Sarah Parker Women's Centre, find us at ucl.ac.uk forward slash racism dash racialisation or follow us on Twitter at UCL underscore SPRC. This podcast was produced by me, Kaisa Kahu, and executive produced by Professor Paul Gilroy.